Today I'm do something I don't normally do. I'm reading from a paraphrased version of scripture. And the reason I'm doing that is our as our scripture reading today is the story of Naaman the Syrian. Some of you may be familiar with that story. It's a very long story and and I thought this might be a helpful way to to read a little different version to that's written in a in a sense to tell the the story itself, and to not have to always include every piece of information. So, so we're departing from our normal translation this morning and, and reading, reading from this version. General Naaman was head of the Syrian army, and he was a man highly regarded by the king, and he was also a very honorable, honorable man and very courageous. In fact, the Lord had given success to Syria because of Naaman, but he contracted leprosy. There was a young teenage slave girl of Israel working in the Naaman household, and she said to Mrs. Naaman one day, I wish General Naaman would get with the prophet of the Lord who lives in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Mrs. Naaman had this word passed along to the king, and the king then sent a messenger with a gift of money to the king of Israel, saying that he was going to send General Naaman to Samaria to be healed of leprosy. The king of Israel immediately began to climb the wall and groan, saying, Does the king of Syria think I am a Am God to kill or to make alive? He knows that I cannot heal leprosy, and he's just looking for an excuse to raid my kingdom again and take all my stuff. Elisha heard about this, and he sent a message to the king of Israel saying, Why are you so disturbed? Send me the fellow, and I'll show him that there's still a prophet in Israel. As a result, the king of Syria sent Naaman with his horses and chariot, and he arrived at a little place in Samaria where Elisha was staying. When Naaman stopped in front of Elisha's place, Elisha sent word to him by a messenger out into the front of the house that the great general was to go and take a real good bath in the Jordan River. Naaman was really burned up about this message and said, what kind of a nut is that prophet? Certainly he could have come and prayed over my hand and done something. This take a bat business is crazy. I could have bathed at home where we have clear water, a lot better water than the one in the Jordan River here. And Naaman started away in a great rage. One of the aides of Naaman, who wasn't ready for another 70-mile chariot ride, said, General, if the prophet had asked you to do something very difficult, we know you would have done it, so why not do something simple? This reasoning made sense to Naaman. And he went out to the Jordan and took a real good bath. And when he'd finished bathing, he was no longer a leper. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. There's something fun and playful about this story and yet powerful. It's the kind of story that just latches itself onto us and doesn't leave us alone. We see it in different ways. We look at it, learn more we read it, different things we see about us, about who we are, 
ultimately, though, about who you are. So my prayer is that in speaking about this experience of Naaman's today, that you might deepen for us what we already know about you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So you may have heard the familiar old joke about the guy that's sitting in his home and it starts to flood and the waters rise all around and it's getting high and it goes up to past the furniture and past and the guy has to actually crawl out onto his roof to get away from it all and there he is as the water rises stranded nothing but water and roofs all around him needs help he needs saving brief moment come passes and along comes a person in a canoe with an extra seat says I've got this seat in a canoe why don't you jump in save yourself no he says God will save me I'm okay go find someone else Water continues to rise, and a short while later, a motorboat comes by, and they've got some room. They shout at him from a distance, say, we've got room in here. Why don't you come save yourself? No, no, no. God will save me. I'm okay. Time goes by. Water gets a little higher, and a helicopter flies by. Basket lowered. Water's now up to his knees. You know, out of the loudspeaker comes Get into the basket, save yourself. No, 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 no. Unwavering in his faith, he says, God will save me. I'm Go find someone else. Water keeps rising and eventually the guy drowns. And he comes to the gates of heaven and he says, Where were you, Lord? I waited for you to save me. And God looks at him and says, I sent you a canoe and a motorboat and a helicopter. What do you want? <laughs> what were you expecting, right? Interestingly enough, that's what Naaman is like in our story. He's like that guy standing on the roof. Comes to this whole healing experience with all kinds of grand assumptions about things. One thing that the paraphrased version actually doesn't do is it doesn't go into long length about what Naaman's expecting. And our pew Bible's go a little further with it. He is expecting all kinds of stuff to happen and the way it's going to... In fact, you get this sense in the story that he's just sharing it with the whole crew as they go along to Samaria. You know, the king knows about this, so surely he's made an announcement to the whole community. They're all going to be there. I know it. This is, they'll all be there. And, of course, who knows? Elisha's probably going to come out of his home with everybody present, and he's going to do some big, huge prayer and put his hand up and on and heal me right and there'll be fireworks and hot dog stands and the whole night it's going to be a big show I'm telling you I can't wait of course when he gets there you know the advice he gets pales by comparison go take a bath (laughs) that's what just go take a bath and it takes Everyone around him to convince him to reconsider this simple advice that he's just received because it does pale in comparison to his huge expectations in his head. Go take a bath, he says. Interestingly enough, though, what we find in this story with that dynamic is is something that's, well... 
something of God in that. In fact, what we find is that God uses the ordinary folk in the story to move things along. Do you notice that? That it's all the unseen kind of unknowns that drive each movement forward. Not even, you know, Naaman for sure. Not, nothing's forward about him right now. He's just in this place. Not even Elisha really. It's the others. It's all the unknowns. If it weren't for the, for the Hebrew girl, he wouldn't have even known Elisha was out there. If it weren't for the, the aides interjecting, risking themselves actually. I know I'm going to get my head cut off for this man, but, but I'm not going home with nothing. Why don't you just try this simple advice? What's it going to hurt? If they hadn't have done, if each of the kind of the background behind the scenes people hadn't played their role without any further expectation, Naaman would have gone nowhere. He'd still be sitting at home, moping around, wallowing around in his own junk. And so that, that shows us, reveals to us one of the central messages of this story, that it's really not about some magic of the Jordan River. There's nothing unique about the Jordan River. It's got water like every other river. Naaman says it, and he's right. Why wouldn't the rivers at home work? They're actually a lot cleaner than this one. Why won't they? They will. It's fine. It's not, it's not about that. It's about God. We have uncovered here something about God. Naaman discovers something about God that God, in fact, seeks out ordinary, unnoticed people to do unordinary, noticed things. That working relationally is who God is. Professor Will Willimon points out, he says, just look at the Trinity. Look at the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That alone is God in relationship with God's self. That's a central reality of who God is. Without anything else, God simply doesn't go solo. Flat out refuses to do it. In fact, God never saves alone. Salvation, it seems, is not an individual endeavor, but a communal experience that is shared. Jesus certainly never worked alone. Think about it. Before he even set his first step into his official journey of ministry, before he did any of that stuff, before he gave the great sermon on the mount in front of all kinds of crowds, before he prayed for someone else, before he healed someone else, before he, in that official journey of ministry, before he did any of that stuff, the first thing he did was ask for help. He got 12 guys, you know, just Joe Schmo, really, and said, come, I want you to help me. I want you to share in my life. 
And it didn't stop there. The Gospels are very clear that it goes beyond that initial 12. That The next big one is when he sends the 70, as the title of that story goes. He sends the 70 out to do what he's been doing. He says, go, do what I've been doing. I want your help. Come share in my life. At the end of Matthew, he gives the great commission, right? Go and make disciples and baptize in the name of the... Go and do... Go be part of my, come share in my life. I want your help. Jesus does it not because he needs to, but because that's who God is. God would simply have it no other way. And because God works this way, we end up finding ourselves in all kinds of experiences and situations in and outside the life of the church where we don't know what to do, don't know what to say. We come into, into experiences where we got nothing. We just know we need to be there and there's something about being there that's important and we don't know what to do about it. We don't have the answers. We're not the experts. We, we come into those places often feeling like it's right but not knowing what to do. God chooses us anyway because that's who God is. Refuses to work alone. A pastor in William, Williams, Virginia, I think Williamsburg, Virginia, tells the story of an elder who came up to him after church one day and she came up to him and she had just visited that weekend a family in the church who just had a baby. And at the time, no one knew until she visited. And she came and she said, I just visited the family, had a baby, they had a little girl, and she has Down syndrome. And she looked at this pastor and said, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. What did you do? Well, they, they let me hold her. And I, I told them how beautiful she is. And, and we prayed together. We, we prayed and, and, I, and I thanked God for this beautiful life. And I, I told this little girl what a wonderful family she's been given. And I asked God's blessing on them and that's all I could think of. I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know what to do. And I told her, the pastor says, I told her, I said, you did just right. I don't know that I would say anything else. What else is there to say? Perhaps God has used you in a way that you don't yet know. Sure enough, two weeks later, the same elder comes up to that same pastor and hands him a note. And on the note, it was from the mom. It simply said, thank you. Thank you for doing, for not doing what everyone else has done. Thank you for not saying what everyone else has said. All our friends and all of their good intentions, they came in and they said, I'm sorry. But you didn't do that and we're not sorry. We love our baby girl. She's a miracle. And we can't wait 
to share in her life. Thank you. And the elder looked at the pastor and she said, I know I didn't know what to say, but I couldn't fathom having ever said I'm sorry. I don't know how. And the pastor looked at her and said, well, maybe they thought they did know what to say. My friends, I often think that God intentionally chooses those who don't know. Chooses those who haven't got a clue. And then sends us out. Because if we don't have a clue, then we go with an empty slate. Oh, we do bring the information we bring. And that's important. One of the aspects of this story is each person kind of did bring some piece of information and offered it, but came with no expectations beyond that. In every other sense, they came completely empty. God calls those who can go empty Because then we are wide open to the possibilities of what God might be doing in each given moment and situation. Quite often when we bring our grand assumptions of how God's going to work, we hinder the work God's going to do. God chooses us anyway. Chooses us anyway. Us. You. You believe that? A bunch of half-witted miscreants who found our way into this church. God chooses us because that's who God is. Naaman discovers it in the story. A God who flat out refuses to work alone. A God who ultimately sets this table for us and says, come, eat and drink. I want your help. Share in my life. That's who God is. That's who Christ is. This is how the Spirit works. And we, we get to be part of it. Amen.